Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fabulous episode of your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours too, the Cabot Cove Gazette. I am your co-host, TJ. And I'm Bridget. We don't have last names this week. That's fine. West. We're familiar now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We are the we are the cozy hosts that you love joining every week. And this week we'll be talking about the episode "My Johnny Lies Over the Ocean." So uh, I almost called you Jessica. So Bridget, would you like I to give us a Jessica summary of this episode? I would love to be Jessica. Um, I love this episode. I think it has so many fun elements of cozy mystery. So the premise is that Jessica's niece has tragically lost her husband to suicide, uh, and she's had a breakdown as a result. And Jessica is going to take her on a cruise for a couple of weeks just to restore and heal. Um, so we're on a ship, right? We have a confined amount of people. Uh, we have this ship being populated with these really colorful characters. And someone starts sending messages and codes to Jessica's niece, Pam, that make her think that her husband is still alive. Uh, it's just a really, really fun sort of gothic story, and it's set on a ship with all of the intrigue and the, mm-hmm. the sort of cloistered environment of a ship. And we have, um, Tej, I'm going on too long now, but we have like such a wonderful s- guest cast this week. We have Jason Evers. Um, we have Belinda Montgomery as Pam, Jessica's niece, who will be in a few years Doogie Howser's mom. We have Vicki Lawrence. And we have Joanne Worley from Laughing playing her friend. The two of them are the comedic relief in the episode. We have Leslie Nielsen as the mm-hmm. ship's captain. And we have Lawrence Pressman as uh, the bad guy. I mean, it's an amazing cast. It is. And I cannot speak highly enough of Vicki Lawrence. And I want to just get that out of the way right out the gate. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that, by, you know, most people nowadays probably recognize Vicki Lawrence either from Carol Burnett or from Mama's Family. Um, yeah, especially if you were like us ch- children of the '80s, like if we we grew up in the '80s, and I I agree with you that she is just brilliant. Like she has an ease of her com- of her comedy that is the envy of most actresses. I think like she just knows how to be funny just by the way she acts and and effortless effortlessly. Right? You don't. I never feel like she's straining to make jokes. Exactly. She's just, and I think that she has that kind of star or that charisma that we sometimes associate with like uh, film stars. Like she mm-hmm. just exudes charm and charisma. Yeah. So she is a, a welcome grace note in I think this episode. Because she obviously doesn't have like much to do per se, but she is just a lovely bit of, you know. Comedic relief, an extra bonus. I said. And then also at some point they are, um, we're, we're looking for Johnny's birth mother on the ship. Uh, and so she and her friend, Carla, played by Joanne Worley, are two of the women who could be the right age, you know. So they're there to be part of our suspect pool, essentially. One quick note about Joanne Worley is that she would go on to star, star with Angela Lansbury in Beauty and the Beast. She is the voice of the wardrobe in Beauty and the Beast. Oh, really? I didn't know that. 
Mm-hmm. So oh, that's interesting. Casting trivia. Yeah. She's obviously come off laughing is how most people would have known her. Vicki Lawrence, uh, you mentioned Carol Burnett, which ended in 78. So this episode is 85. Uh, but Mama's Family started in 83. So she's she's hardworking. And we have uh, Leslie Nielsen. So Airplane was in 1980. Um, obviously, he's had a long and storied career. But that would probably be the biggest thing, I think, that people would have known him from by 85. The Naked Gun series wasn't until 88. Right. And he's, as you like said in the earlier, like he's a bit wasted in this episode. Like he's just kind of the straight, as you said, the straight man. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a little bit disappointing. But I mean, I find Leslie Nielsen endlessly watchable because he's just with his suave kind of, you know, debonair aura in his voice. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned Airplane, but he, he's not doing one of his comedic roles in this. He's doing the the sort of suave, charming guy that we saw him do earlier in his career and that we'll see him do with, like, the Golden Girls um, and providing a potential spark for Jessica on the ship. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. So I really enjoyed that. Also, one other thing I wanted to say uh, here at the top is I, you know, when, when and if we create our, tum- you know, our Tumblr or our Instagram <laughs> that is, you know, the Jessica Flasher fashion corner, I loved her outfits in this episode <laughs> i loved them from the time she appears with that gorgeous ascot that adds just a little bit of you know white grace to her throat to all the other outfits that she wears throughout this episode <laughs> i was gushing bridget i was gushing about how great she looked in this episode. well and they're they're all um they're all vaguely sailor themed right so it's know, all red it's it. all red white and blue and she wears lots of dresses that don't necessarily have a sailor neckline but she'll wear a scarf around it to simulate the sailor neckline so it's really cute play on the set I loved it. I was like, whoever did the wardrobe for this show deserves multiple Emmys. Like, they <laughs> just, I mean, this is my inner gay coming out. I don't normally gush about fashion, but there's just something about yeah. JB's wardrobe that adds just so much to her character and that keeps her from being just the fussy old lady. Like, she's just so stylish. I hate it, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. That was, yes, I thought she looked really cute in this too, especially since I was so disappointed by her outfits last in the last episode, Murder to a Jazz Beat. How are her shoes? That's what I want to know. Any any shoe notes, Bridget? Well, yeah, I mean, she has a spectacular pair of black and white peep toes in this. They're vaguely spectator themed, but um, they're just, they're great. And I love that she's wearing heels all over this ship. Like, mm-hmm. it's a, sh- you know, ships rock and... You're supposed to be comfortable on vacation. You want to wear sandals or something. No, she's JB. Mm-hmm. She's wearing mm-hmm. peep toes the whole time. Yep. Yeah. So the other character we haven't talked about is Ramon, the ship's steward, who Oof. is like Vicki Lawrence and Joanne Worley provides our comedic relief in this episode. He's also smoking hot. Like my partner and I were both like, what the Did hell? you really think that? Yeah, I'm a sucker really? for that. I mean, I know it's ridiculously like cliched Italian, but. Even so, like with the bushy mustache and the, you know, the tight tight sailor clothes. But I'm like, could you look at his butt? Like, come on now. Like, (laughs) and those sailor pants. I'm channeling my inner Blanche Devereaux today, apparently. Um, (laughs) Which is to say my outer Blanche Devereaux. But I digress. Um, He was just, I don't know. He exuded a certain kind of sexual appeal that my partner and I were just like, whoa. That's funny that you get that because I think the episode tries so hard to make us see him as ridiculous and therefore not attractive. So he immediately is like hitting on both Jessica and Pam and Jessica makes a joke like we'll flip a coin for him and heads you win and tails I lose like I want no part Mm -hmm. of this guy. Um, But then as the episode progresses, she's like, 
it might be useful to like vaguely flirt with him and mm-hmm. just like indulge that. And so we get these like really beautiful moments of um, him like asking her to dance and he says, I will show you my hoochie coochie. And instead of being like shocked or like being like, no, she's she says, well, how did you know that's the one thing I want to see? You know? <laughs> and we get the, the famous gif of her waving at him. Um, so it's just so fun to watch her uh-huh. flirt with this guy. But I, my son's teach was that we're not supposed to see him seriously as a sex object at all because he's so ridiculous. So it's interesting that you found him to be hot and paid attention to him. Well, we're gay men, so we're sluts. So... <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. That's just the only rationale I can give you. I'm, I apologize to some of our more conservative listeners, but I'm just being honest. But you like, should apologize to all the gay men who are listening and are going to be like, I am not a slut. I do ha, not like that. Self, you mean to all of our self-delusional gay listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, though, you know, um, Leslie Nielsen as the ship's captain is the guy we're supposed to take seriously as a potential right. romantic interest. Um and I think Jessica even asked him, like, he asked her to dance at one point. And she's like, are you going to show me your hoochie coochie? And he's like, I don't know what that is. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, thank God. Okay. Well, yeah. And plus they have that lovely moment at the end where they're sort of like strolling on the on the dock. Or sorry, not on the dock. On the ship. And he's like, they're the sort of relating to each other. Yes. Um, relating to one another. Like the details of the case, like sort of giving us the wrap up. Like I thought that was a lovely scene of these two, you know, older people kind of, you know, just re- reflecting on what's just happened. Like, yeah. I, I thought that was lovely. A lovely little way to conclude the whole episode. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the case then? Yes, let's please. Because I think that it's one of the more tragic ones. Again, like in it last is. week's episode, it is a deeply tragic episode. Because Johnny, as it turns out, like before his suicide, had met his birth mother, who is now this very wealthy and powerful woman, who is basically being gaslit by her husband. Or by, sorry, by, yeah, by her husband, who wants to get her money. So it's, as yeah. you said, I think I hadn't put together the gothic part of it, but as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. It's gothic, but on a ship. Well, yeah. Well, it, and and this the whole idea of um, uh, trying to uh, screw with Pamela's mind. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that happens, they arrive on the ship and they're given complimentary champagne and they're like, where'd this come from? And there's a note that says, you know, have a good voyage, but it, it uses Johnny's pet name for Pam. Mm-hmm. And she, so she's, you know, traumatized by that. And then they go to dinner. Uh, the dinner special that's clipped into their menus is a dish that she invented mm-hmm. for him that was his favorite dish. You know, so she, we just watched this poor woman having this absolute breakdown. Um, and, it, and so Jessica is like, you're not crazy. Someone is doing mm-hmm. this to you and we need to figure out why, which is really great. It's great to have that, that Jessica immediately knows mm-hmm. this is not you this is not you you know having a problem mm-hmm. and i'm i'm here to support you and i believe you and i'm gonna fix this right and it's yet another incident of, of jessica's far-flung family not only does she have rel- like she has friends everywhere she also has family <laughs> everywhere and we get to meet her brother well this time it's her brother and i'm like had a brother. oh honey we are never gonna see you she must not love you very much as a brother because we are never gonna see you again <laughs> we're never even gonna hear your name again well i just thought it was nice that we finally get like a, 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 a little bit of specificity as to how these people yes. are related to Jessica. Like normally it's sort of nebulous, like it might be Frank's yeah. brother or sister's children or whatever. But now we're like, okay. I was like, I, as someone who loves genealogy and loves seeing like things laid out in clarity, I'm just like, finally, finally I know who this, who this child belongs to. Yeah. That we'll never see again. Right. Of course. <laughs> 
So I, you know, I, I found the, you know, the plight of the, of the murder woman deeply like affecting. Cause it's like, okay. So this woman first, she discovered, you know, rediscovers her son that she had to give up for adoption out of, you know, because she was a teenager when she had him and then she's being gaslit and then she ends up, you know, being murdered by her own husband. It's like, who is a true monster? And, and set, who sets it up to look like a suicide? Who's a monster? He's an absolute Oh, yeah, that's monster. why he's played by Lawrence Pressman. You know, as soon as you see Lawrence Pressman, something bad is coming, right? Because mm-hmm. he's not only tormenting his wife, he's tormenting poor, you know, Jessica's niece. Like, Yeah, and another- I got to tell you, that doesn't make sense to me. So so yeah. the, the idea, we when we put it all together at the end, what we understand is that he found out that his wife, Andrea, had met her birth son, that he had, she had this son she gave up for adoption. Potentially then... He might be in getting her money, and so potentially Pam might be getting her money, and so that's why he needs to kill her and make it look like suicide to keep her money. Is that right? Well, because remember, because Leslie Nielsen's character said something to the effect it wasn't community property, so he had yeah. to, he recognized that he, all of her wealth was made before they were married, yes. so he wasn't entitled to any of it. Right. So by killing her, he gets it instead of a divorce, is what TJ is talking about. But why does that necessitate him? torturing Pam and them going on this cruise to follow Pam and then setting up Andrea's death as a suicide. Like, why not just kill Andrea at home or anywhere? Like, why even involve Pam? Like, why is there this whole plot line to have Pam break down? Well, I think that if I was going to give the episode its credit, I think it's because it would give a more convincing rationale for her suicide. Like, it wouldn't just be out of the nowhere, but that she would be tormented by what she was doing to the niece i would assume i don't but know then why would she do it in the first place well I, that's a good question <laughs> Doesn't make any, and then also like we I, we do get told i mean the big question is like how did she even know this stuff to do and how did he mm-hmm. know this stuff to do but i think at one point there's we're told that pam's house had gotten broken into mm. recently and so we're supposed right. to understand that he must have gone through her stuff and somehow found the recipe that magically happened to be Johnny's favorite and magically happened to find evidence of his nickname for her. It's, I'm sorry, I'm not buying it. It's really convoluted. This whole thing is... Which I think is why, you know, last week we talked about showing and not telling. And I think that this is another case where like the, the, when Jessica and the captain are wandering across the deck and he like sort of like piecing it all together, I think that's an example of telling and not showing. And I think Mm -hmm. that's meant to do the heavy lifting so that we don't think too carefully about. It's also, it's, yeah, it's in the last two minutes and you're not supposed to think too carefully because once you start thinking too carefully about it, it doesn't make sense. But there's joy in the episode of watching the 40, one or so minutes that come before mm-hmm. and watching all of this torture that's being done to Pam and how Jessica's supporting her. I mean, it, it, to me, it's one of my favorite episodes. I love this episode. I just think that the the twist at the end that it was the husband is like, it just really doesn't make any sense. Right. And it's also the, that moment where he's like sitting in his cabin and he's toasting his, his wife's like picture and like sort of gloating about his success. Like it was a bit, you know, how I put this, like melodramatic and the old like mustache twirly like ha look what I've done like <laughs> it was a bit much even for you know for you know murder she wrote a lot of this episode is over the top I mean we talked about Vicky Lawrence and Joanne Worley um just being the comedic relief uh we uh, we also see Joanne Worley's character Carla has just is like bribing the the captain of the dining room so she can sit next to the rich guys and is like 
trying to learn from these Oklahoma cattlemen and um, I mean, there's also their opening scene where, like, they're, they're literally running, running down the deck screaming. screaming, wait, wait, in unison. It's such, it's just a really well-written scene. I, it's the most adorable entrance. Yeah. Um, we also have part of Jessica's plan to catch the killer is to uh, pretend that she's drunk oh, and has solved the crime. And so she, she shows up to his cabin acting as if she's drunk and is like, I know you did it and I know how you did it. it. And she, the reason she does this is to get him ultimately to follow her and try to kill her. Uh, but she switches places with a police officer on the ship at the last minute. I don't know what you'd call him. A security guy on the ship at the last minute. Um, so they can catch him in the act, right? But it's this it's it's a great scene where she's once again pretending to be drunk. We've seen this a couple of times now. Yep, right. When she was when she was hypnotized in Death Casts a Spell. And I, I have to say, I love these moments when JB pretends to be drunk. I love it for so many reasons. One, because obviously it's, you know, it's JB. And I mean, let's be real. Like JB in her whole life has maybe had what, a hot toddy or a nightcap in her life. Like, <laughs> I mean, she's not, you know, she's not someone she drinks wine at dinner tj come on right she's not the kind of person who would who would give in to you know to that so it's all the more hilarious but then i you know she's not salome otterborn for example to refer to right you know her character in death on the nile right but i just love these moments when jessica gives in when angela like sort of brings out that kind of person that she's played in the past you know when she's Mm -hmm. played the salome's or the uh what's her name from Sweeney Todd, like that sort of earthier, more visceral, you know, sort of uh, ribald, risque kind of character. I love those moments when Angela gets to do that as JB, just because it has all these different threads that are coming together and are really well put together so nicely. This is why I think that this episode had more time and effort put into the writing than the last one, because there's so many other ways that she could have um, essentially trapped George. Mm -hmm. To prove that he was the murderer or, you know, found clues to set him up to confess himself. Um, But whoever was writing this thought it would be really fun to have her pretend to show up at his cabin drunk. Because that's just fun for the audience, right? It doesn't actually, it's not necessary to this investigation in any way, shape or form. But it's really fun for the audience. It is. Although, also, I, speaking of things that don't make sense, so just because he tried to accost her on the ship, he suddenly now, like, just blurts out a confession that he murdered his wife? Like, <laughs> that, that's how it works, TJ. Come I mean, on. You catch one person in, uh, you know, one act, and then suddenly, magically, they, as you say, they just confessed everything else. They confessed everything, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Man, the police are really doing something wrong in the real world. Then. Like, that's what, <laughs> yeah. we need to be taking more lessons from JB, like just ensnaring people with, you know, cleverly laid traps. Like, that's the way to do criminal investigations. That's what I'm getting from this. Yeah. Nitpicking the plot is, I think, easy to do with murder mysteries, because I think that so often... I know, I'm so guilty of doing that, and I need to quit doing that. Because, you know, to refer to what we said, like, last week about Joe Popcorn, like, I think your average tv watcher certainly someone who's just plugging in to an episode of murder she wrote while doing right while eating dinner or whatever else people are doing is not gonna be like oh well blah 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 you know i think they're just gonna be like oh no because the show and the show doesn't want us to do that the show wants us to just wait for it to explain things to us right Mm -hmm. and i think you know we've talked also about the industry constraints of television how quickly episodes have to get written and produced and and so, you know, there isn't time necessarily to think through every potential plot hole. 
and every potential pitfall with a solution to a puzzle. Um, right. And of course, they didn't know that we were going to be watching these 30 years later. They didn't. You know, like diving deep into... Pausing you know, every scene, writing notes. Yeah, they, yep, they didn't. They did not think that. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe they hoped we would. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, there was. I guess there was a hope that, you know, these things would achieve some sort of lasting fame. Even here at the beginning. Although I will note that this is one of the episodes that I've seen the most. Like, it's the one that seems to me that enters into, like that viewings on Hallmark and other kind of channels like that most frequently. Cause I, like I recognize it the minute that it starts uh-huh. and I always am like, Oh, I had no idea this was the first episode or one of the, in the first season, which is oh. interesting in itself. The way that, that like, you know, syndic- these new broadcasts kind of decontextualize them. So like, you don't really, Did you, do you feel like you don't recognize it as first season because it seems more sophisticated? Like it would have taken them a while to find their, um, to use upon sea legs. And so yeah. it doesn't feel like well a first done. season episode. That's what I would say. I mean, and I think that that's true of most of the first season. Like, I just, I don't know that I have the, like, I'm not like you. I haven't, like, spent as much time with this show. So I don't necessarily, I'm not as conversant with each season. So I don't see the signs. Like, it's not like the Golden Girls where I can always tell what season it is. But, but. but you can, uh, that tells you, though, that you can see why this series was such a hit. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are, if the, an episode feels like it's not season one, that, that means because we know the, ca- it, we know the characters so well and the writers mm-hmm. know the characters so well and the actors know the characters so well and the story is really rich and deep, right? Mm-hmm. And so if it doesn't, quote unquote, feel like season one, I mean, that tells you that season one was amazing and they mm-hmm. hit it out of the park and of course they were going to get renewed and of course it was going to get nominated for all the awards. Like, Yep. And I mean, I, I do think that, you know, I mean, we should just retitle this like the Jessica Fletcher Fans Club. Like, <laughs> the Angela Lansbury <laughs> Stan uh, podcast. Yes, <laughs> which, you know, we are. That is the sort of secondary purpose of this project. But I do think that that's why this show flourishes so much with just one key character that we have all the time. So it doesn't have to necessarily like spend as much time developing all the side characters, except for obviously, you know, the standbys and, and Cabot Cove. But it's like, since so much of it rests solely on Lansbury's shoulders, like, mm-hmm. I mean, but I think that's just a testament to her accomplishment like i think that's just something we don't necessarily like think about as consciously like here's a woman you know after six decades or well what four decades in hollywood whatever it is you know here literally like carrying this huge show on her own like and even and is able to have come out of the gate with this character so fully drawn it's just it's astonishing like it really is like you know I'm just gushing again, but I just, I think that it's just a testament to how absolutely amazing she is that she was able to do all that. Well, and it's a, te- a testament to the show creators and writers that, as yeah. well. I mean, I knock the the holes in the puzzles all the time, but um, it's really good writing, you know, yeah. and we often think of good writing, good writing that endures over television. We tend to point to sitcoms. Mm-hmm. Because there's something about, like, if something can still make you laugh 30 years later when the cultural context has completely changed, like, that must be good writing, right? So also like, the Golden Girls. <laughs> yeah. Betty White is always saying, like, you can't play it if they don't write it. And so if mm-hmm. you like the Golden Girls, if you think it's a good show, it's because of the writing. But but I think the same, I think this show is exceptionally well written. Mm-hmm. It's exceptionally well written. If if it's th- it's lasted this long, if you and I have this much to say about it, I mean, if it if it propelled Lansbury to stardom partly that's her acting and that's her mm-hmm. personality as a human that people love her and want to support her right but it's also because she had the material um mm-hmm. so i think you know this the show is it's uh, anyway now i'm just murder she wrote stan yes i mean i think that's okay i think that you know we're trained as film critics and media critics to not do that but 
I actually think that makes your I think that makes your critical engagement with something better when you genuinely. This is one of TJ's regular gripes with film and media studies is that he feels like um, people trained as scholars in film and media studies have to look for the holes and look for the things to critique. Uh, and TJ regularly talks about how actually finding joy and pleasure in media texts should be part of what we do. I think so. And I mean, that's why I love this podcast. Like, I genuinely love yeah. what we do here. And I, well, not just because I love Bridget, but also I love what we do. And I love that, you know, a show like Murder, She Wrote can take the idea of murder on a cruise ship, which is not particularly original, but turn it into something that feels both comforting, but also new and wonderful. Like, that's part of the reason I, I like this episode is that it, you know, it manages to capture, as you say, joy. Like, there's a certain joy to it, even though obviously there's murder. But there are those moments, like with Vicki Lawrence, there are the moments with Jessica pretending to be drunk, that, like, that give it that peculiar magic. And Ramon. And Ramon, that just make it specifically the magic of Murder, She Wrote. We should, okay, so, so good. That's a good way to, like, pivot back to the episode. Um, can we talk about a few other things that happen? Like, um, just some of the, like, particulars of this cruise, like... LOL, they never actually even tell us where the cruise is going. Right. And it doesn't even matter to the plot. Mm -hmm. We're told that these people are, like, off on a cruise. They talk about, like, when we get to our first port of call. Mm -hmm. We don't even know where they launch from. Right. We know nothing. We have no idea. Was it Miami? Was it Galveston? We have no idea. Um, It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing. And then um, we also just have those, like, joyous 80s things of, like, when they first get to the ship, Jessica's got to go cash her traveler's checks. Mm -hmm. You were probably too young. No, I've had traveler's checks. You you Okay. I remember traveling with traveler's checks, and you have to find the American Express office. Mm -hmm. And when I went to the UK in 2002, they were still using traveler's checks. They were in 2002? I remember very well, distinctly. TJ did. I don't think anybody else did at that Yeah, point. well, I'm from Appalachia. We're a few years behind everything else. <laughs> so I distinctly remember going to the bank and getting traveler's checks. And then when you were in the UK, hunting around for somebody who would cash them, right? Yep. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. Such fun. And they have, um, a, a, you know, we talk a lot about technology and uh, part of the way that Angela, why do I always call her that? Uh, Jessica catches the murderer is through photography, in this case, uh-huh. film photography, so they take a picture on the dock, and um, the woman who is ultimately Johnny's mom, they ask, not knowing, you know, will you take a picture of us so we can have a souvenir? And when they get the f- film developed on the ship, uh, their heads are cut off, and yet the guy says, oh, she was this great photographer, which means he hired a private detective and he took the photos. Um, none of that's important right now. But, the, but what I'm saying is, like, the idea of the, the technology of the time Mm-hmm. Being deeply important as a clue to the murder. And in this case, it was film photography, which is just also fun. And like the waiting mm-hmm. for it to get developed and hoping the pictures will turn out. Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of the 80s, so there's that really moment, like it's a it's a throwaway moment, but I found it really interesting now thinking back and especially given what we were talking about last week with the gig economy. And there's that moment when Vicki Lawrence's character and Joanne Worley are talking about they had to take their vacation time. Like, yeah. So for, there are two things worth noting. One, that this is still an era of relatively stable employment for like secretarial staff. Like you can have vacation time. And afford a vacation. <laughs> and afford a vacation on a cruise. But then secondly, like the company abruptly decides that they don't, they can't accumulate it anymore. And so there's another one of those implied critiques of like corporate 80s culture, yeah. which is all about exploit your workers as much as you possibly can yeah. and sh- for your shareholders, which is a huge shift that happens throughout the 80s. So wait, before, so like, so to context, though, so they were saving up, trying to save up six weeks to go to China next year. Mm-hmm. And then on Friday, the company said, you can't save vacation time anymore. And they had three weeks saved up. 
So they immediately had to just find something to do. So they booked this cruise last minute. Otherwise, they'd lost, they would lose all of their vacation time. Right. And it's another of those moments. It's not a, a harsh critique in the way that we've seen before, but it is nevertheless one of those moments where it's like, wow, the 80s really sucked for like everyday worker people. Like, how did you, how do you make a policy that starts on Monday? Like that. No warning. Just right. you're going to lose your vacation time if you don't take it right now. Right. This is, the, uh, but you know, I've been reading a lot lately, um, you know, sort of the where, how do we get where we are today in terms of like corporate exploitation of their workers? And a lot of it happens in the 80s where it's like that shift from protect your employees to indulge your shareholders. Yeah. And that's part of the, like, that's the, those kinds of policies, you know, are meant to squeeze as much labor as you possibly can mm-hmm. and disincentivize taking vacations and stuff like that. I think you make a good point of saying that we should look at this as the start of the horror that we now live in, um, because it's very easy to look at this really cynically and think, how the hell did you have three weeks of vacation time in the first place? Mm-hmm. Nobody gets that today. Right. And um, that you were secretaries and you were able to afford a cruise and were planning to go to China for six weeks. But that's what it was. Six weeks in China? How expensive would that be? Like. How on earth on a secretary salary could you afford that? So it's really easy to look at this cynically and think like, wow, things were so much better back then. But I I think you make a compelling point that we should instead look and think that was the start of this gross exploitation that has led to the crisis that we live in now. Yeah. I mean, and I I think it's one of those moments. I mean, because it's clear that from their perspective, like they're, they're getting, you know, as they should feel like the short end of the stick, like they're getting a raw deal because they've, you know, not only are they being stripped of their ability to take long extended vacations to presumably work more for their company, but they're also being like, you know, uh, denied these opportunities. Like, so it's just a, a nice little moment. Once again, where it, you know, murder, she wrote socialist tract or, you know, <laughs> murder, she wrote to the sequel to Das Kapital. Like, you know, no, it's not, it's not that extreme, but I think that, um, we no, talk- I'm being facetious, of course. Yeah, it's it's definitely not it's not a communist. Comrade Fletcher. It, it was just gonna say, don't even call this communist by any stretch. But it definitely, I think, uh, it's really easy when you watch television to think that it just reflects the social times. And I think what you and I have shown over several episodes now is that there's ways to see uh, this show is doing um, a, a pretty intense critique of the Reagan era. Mm-hmm. without ever making it explicitly so and without being um, polarizing or polemic or off-putting in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's the brilliant. joy of television to me is like the ways that we can see its commentary um, while also it's fulfilling its main function to be entertaining. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Nothing like giving a little bit of anti-Reagan commentary its day in the sun. So uh, for the Kevin Cove Gazette, I am TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keys. And we will see you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>